Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. It's up the Black Police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth a crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Welcome everyone. I'm Mark Zuckerman, president of the Century Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us for today's event and a special thank you to our esteemed panelists and moderator and to our host, NYU Wagner. The Century Foundation is a progressive independent think tank that drives policy change to make people's lives better. We pursue economic, racial, and gender equity in education, healthcare, and work. At TCF, we believe that public policy is an essential tool to expand opportunity and ensure justice for all. We also know that policy cannot be blind to our history. Sadly, this history includes the stain of slavery, racism, and white supremacy. We see this legacy enduring today in all facets of life, from countless killings of unarmed black men and women, vast racial disparities in healthcare, to a black and white wealth gap of roughly 10 to one, just to name a few. In order to advance racial justice and equity today, we must address inequities and equalities of our past. That's why I'm so looking forward to today's panel where we will get into the weeds on how to implement reparations in America. It's a conversation that's frankly long overdue. And based on the overwhelming interest we received at this event, it's one that people are more than ready to have. With that, I'd like to introduce Sherry Gleed, my friend and Dean of NYU Wagner School of Public Service. Sherry, over to you. I'm Sherry Gleed, Dean of NYU Wagner's Graduate School of Public Service. I am so delighted to be partnering once again with the Century Foundation to advance our conversations about key issues in public service. Uh, in today's conversation, we're gonna discuss getting to the root of the black-white wealth gap, that gap perpetuates systemic racism. And we're gonna talk about how the implementation of reparations can help address this crisis. I wanna welcome our moderator, Danielle Belton, Editor-in-Chief at The Root, and welcome our speakers, Cedric Asante Muhammad, Chief Race, Wealth, and Community at the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, and Keith Young, City Councilman in Asheville, North Carolina. During the event, you can submit your questions by clicking the Q&A button on your screen. A recording of today's event will be made available 48 hours after the event on both the TCF.org and NYU Wagner YouTube pages. And now to kick us off, I'd like you to welcome our keynote speaker, Representative Barbara Lee. Well, good afternoon. First of all, let me just say how honored I am to be with NYU Wagner and Century Foundation and for today's panel uh, talking about uh, what is so critical in terms of where we are in our country as it relates to uh, systemic racism and the historical context for how we got to this point. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, reparations. And so I just want to thank all of our panelists um, for being here today and just uh, know that uh, I truly believe that we're at this pivotal point in our history when we need to acknowledge and to really understand uh, how systemic racism has truly been built into our society for the last uh, 401 years and all of the insidious ways that it remains part of every aspect of our life. I always say um, systemic racism is part of the DNA of the United States. Inequality is at the heart of every crisis that we're dealing with right now. And uh, of course, um, here we have the United States, of course, the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world, yet our poverty rates continue to eclipse most industrialized nations, disproportionately impacting communities of color, uh, and um, it, make no mistake, uh, 401 years of systemic racism, oppression, Jim Crow, the Black Code, 
the lack of access to voting rights. Uh, we have a system in this country which um, perpetuates white supremacy. And that's why I'm so uh, pleased that Congresswoman Jackson Lee has supported and introduced H.R. 40, which, of course, is the, the bill to establish a commission to study but also to develop reparations. I have H.R. 100, which is legislation that would establish a commission on truth, racial healing, and transformation, which many countries around the world, actually over 40 countries, have established to really have the historical context that brought about either slavery, genocide, crimes against humanity. As an example of uh, correcting and repairing the damage of the past, just look at our criminal justice system and uh, mass incarceration of African Americans disproportionate to our population. As we witness the brutal, brutal murder of Mr. George Floyd and other African Americans throughout, I won't even say the decades, I'd say throughout the centuries, we're witnessing the manifestations once again of systemic racism, which we could trace all the way back to uh, 401 years ago when the first enslaved Africans were brought to America. And so the time is now for us to examine the effects of slavery and understand that and put it into a historical context, what we see today as it relates to systemic racism. We have to really uh, look at how our history has impacted the laws and policies of today because police reform uh, and making policing uh, a, a real issue around safety in our communities because it has not been about safety. But when you look at reparations and repairing the damage, I think what our young people are talking about in terms of reimagining policing really is one step forward to making sure that we have, a, a, have communities which are safe for African Americans and people of color. And so we want to make sure that we have this historical context of slavery and the enslaved Africans who built this country for over 250 years uh, to put in historical context of what we see today and what we know as it relates to police murders, the disproportionate rates of COVID-19, healthcare disparities, the wage gap, the wealth gap. You know all of the issues that um, systemic racism really uh, reveals. And so we have to have this uh, moment where we tell the truth. Uh, we need to put together a process for understanding and healing and then move toward transformation, which, of course, the transformation means disrupting and dismantling systemic racism and building a country based on racial justice and racial equity. So therein lies the rationale for uh, reparations. And reparations can take many forms, but we remember the point is to repair the damage. And so... Thank goodness we're moving forward with H.R. 40 in the Congress. California has just passed a reparations bill. So we're going to be, I think, one of the first states that's going to have on record a commission to look at and how to and develop reparations. And so this is not about holding um, individuals responsible. This is about holding a system of government responsible for, system, for systemically and structurally discriminating and excluding and oppressing African-Americans. And so we have to unpack that, that uh, system that we have in this country and rebuild it based on fairness and justice. And so in rebuilding this, uh, H.R. 40 and reparations is essential because we have generations of African-Americans who have not been able to acquire wealth. Another form of reparations could be making sure that every African-American would be able to own a home and to begin to build wealth for their children and for future generations. We have not had that access.
in the past. And so, once again, the study is extremely important because once we conduct the study and we know it's needed, we at the same time develop a process that would put forth what uh, reparations would look like in this country. So thank you again very much for inviting me to be with you. And I hope that you would encourage all of your friends, your colleagues, your relatives to ask their members of Congress to support H.R. 40 and H.R. 100 because we need to get these bills to the floor, we need to get them passed, and we need to get on with doing the work of repairing the damage of the last 401 years. Thank you so much, Representative Barbara Lee, for those remarks. For everyone at home, I'm Danielle Belton, Editor-in-Chief of The Root, and I'm pleased to moderate today's discussion. I'd like to bring in our panelists, Diedrich Asante Mohammed, uh, the Chief Race, Wealth, and Community for uh, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, and Keith Young, City Councilman from Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome, guys. Oh, you both need to unmute yourselves. Yes, thank Thanks. you. Good to be here. What and half. Glad to have you both. So my first question is for Diedrich. Many people don't realize the full extent of African-American contribution to generational wealth, health, and the overall success of this country. And we're not talking a few billion dollars, but trillions of dollars, some reports as much as $94 trillion of labor taken from us since the advent of slavery. What would America be without the forced contributions of black people? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think you've uh, helped highlight that in the question. I mean, clearly that the economy of the United States was based on enslavement and was based on the appropriation of not just African people, but of indigenous people's land, right? And that is, you know, the, the basis of not just, you know, agricultural industry, which was, you know, very strong to be in the South around cotton and these types of things, but also it was the basis of a lot of finance uh, in the North and even manufacturing because cotton was made into things. And even the insurance industry in New England, uh, a lot of the wealth was made in uh, importing and exporting, well, I guess importing uh, human beings, uh, you know, from usually the Caribbean, uh, from the triangle trade uh, from West Africa. So, so it was a holistic uh, forced contribution and it's a, and it's a, it's a contribution that really built all strands of the American economy. Uh, but what I would look at is I don't look at reparations as so much, well, they took $50,000 or $50 trillion. And so we need $50 trillion back. I look at it to repair, right? It's a bridge the inequality that we have today. And I, like many others, see that wealth and racial wealth inequality is probably one of the best indicators of inequality. And I've done some back of the napkin estimates that African Americans have about $3 trillion of wealth, but to have, you know, what we would have as part of our demographic representation, 13% of the country, we have 13% of the wealth, we should have about $13 trillion. So we're talking about how do we, uh, you know, bridge that, add that additional $10 trillion. And that's not just $10 trillion, because uh, what money you get in income doesn't just magically transform to wealth. So usually you need more actual dollars to create wealth uh, than, you know, just that 10 trillion. So that is the frame I look at it is, is how do we bridge this racial wealth inequality today? Now, when I think about reparations, I often think about what my father has said to me in the past about um, his family and the legacy that we have where people basically had their labor stolen from them or were criminally underpaid. 
for the work that they did. And so my father, you know, would jokingly say that every raise that he got, he felt like he deserved it not just for himself, but for his mother and father and those who mm -hmm. came before him all deserved this money because they were so grossly underpaid uh, for the work that they did do in the past. You know, my father was able to use that money to put forth in home ownership, in my education, and my sister's education. So when we look at reparations, do we consider things like uh, the housing crisis, our educational disparities, health disparities, as part of the reparations discussion? Yes. I mean, again, I think that's why I really do look at this idea of repair, right? It's, and even though I'm focused on wealth, wealth in our you know, capitalist economy is so foundational to every other economic or socioeconomic uh, indicator, whether it's education or health, you know, and two, you're helping highlight, we're not just talking about what happened a couple hundred years ago, you know, uh, there was forced labor after slavery, right? Uh, uh, in, in the South and even arguably uh, in the North, there is uh, uh, still today, uh, devaluation of uh, African-American homes as compared to white homes, right? There is the kind of ghettoization of African-Americans and a ghettoization of skills that keeps us underpaid. So all of those things need to be brought together and looking at what it require to repair. Because I think once we do repair and we have greater wealth equity, a lot of these other uh, indicators of inequality will diminish. Now, uh, Keith, you're currently tackling the issue of reparations on a local level. Is that the path forward for many African-Americans who have long been disenfranchised by the communities that they live in? Um, you know, I, I, believe it's a, I believe it's a beginning for a pathway forward. You know, this isn't just a, a city of Asheville issue in, in my uh, local municipality. These are, these are basically issues that local municipalities and uh, diverse communities across this country have to wrestle with uh, through a larger context within American history. And what has happened throughout that history brings us to this very point in time, which ultimately, you know, we are at a precipice where action needs to occur on a, a federal level and state levels because local governments, uh, as such, where I work, you know, can't go it alone. And, you know, I personally, I personally want generations to be made whole through systemic action, um, the same systemic action that got us here and basically has produced uh, policies that have outlived many dead politicians and generations of black Americans. So uh, in tackling this issue, you know, I do believe that it's a beginning for a pathway forward, definitely. And, you know, what did it take for you to get, you know, your city to even consider this conversation around reparations? And is it a model that other communities could follow? Um, well, you know, in, in this moment, we have a lot of issues as a country to deal with um, that affect all citizens. But moreover, I think the death of George Floyd uh, has, has been the catalyst to the nation's largest civil rights movement that we're, we're witnessing. And a movement that is supported by black Americans, but also by white allies of the black community. Um, with that said, what we did doesn't have to be replicated in the same manner, but it can define how other local governments move forward. Um, you know, there are a few key ingredients needed to make the recipe work. 
Um, some variables that are in the political realm, you know, can't be accounted for because every space across this country is different. What works in my community might not work somewhere else. I think, you know, the way that we approach it, you have to have a champion. You have to have a political leader, someone who is willing to be a leader in the sense of reparations may not be completely 100% um, ready to be implemented, but that leader has to be able to step out on a limb and sometimes disappoint their constituencies at a rate that they can absorb. And so you have to have a convener where, where what I did was there's a, a retired professor um, of liberal arts and culture here in our city who had over 20 years of data uh, based on some of the disparities specifically to our area. Uh, I also partnered with local activists. And so we had to kind of form sort of a guerrilla warfare tactic team that was very, very small uh, that I could approach our council with the resolution that we came up with and pretty much, you know, tell folks, hey, this is the this is the political hill that I go die on. Feel free to come die with me if you're against it. But um, you have to be able to be straightforward. Uh, the political, uh, you have to understand the political ground in your, your area. And you have to have a convener, a champion, to be able to bring a small group of people together that can organize very quickly and make these things happen. Oh, those are all excellent, uh, excellent advice there for people who want to try to to replicate this in their own communities. My next question is for both of you. Which is more obtainable, the community-based model that we've just finished discussing that kind of addresses systemic racism and economic inequalities, or is there something on the federal level that we could be doing, or is it some combination of the both? I will jump in. And, uh, yeah, I think definitely we want to do uh, be working on both areas, right? And in some local communities, it might be, might be more doable to pass some type of bill like a HR 40 to create a committee to investigate reparations or there might, I mean, reparations can be such a broad thing. And we're talking a lot about actual financial reparations, some type of investment, but some people also talk about reparations in terms of apologies, in terms of monuments, these types of things. So there's a whole different a large realm of what reparations can be. And so in some local communities, you might be able to get support for some aspect of reparations. But it's clear to me that without national reparations, that includes massive investments, we're not going to get that repair, which I'm looking, which I'm looking for. But I do think the local model can show us what is doable, how to help move consciousness uh, forward, and that is not some crazy radical action, but it's something that communities across the country are already engaging in. I would, can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. I, I would totally agree with that. I think, you know, when you look at, you know, you know, what's more obtainable, I would say, you know, we've had folks around this country that have studied reparations and worked on reparations in theory for an extended period of time. And we as a, we at this moment have to move from theory to practice. So I would say any model that's obtainable in your local community to help push forward, uh, quote unquote, the consciousness of the matter, as the gentleman stated, it, it would be, you know, somewhere to start. I think when you look at, you know, where we are, we are going to have to have some sort of federal investment to make this thing work. As I stated earlier, local, local governments can't go it alone. Um, but for the most part, 
you have to be able to move the needle. And that's something that we haven't been able to do in a very long time, uh, ever, so to speak. We've got the bill, the H.R. 40 bill that's, that's in Congress uh, that's been there for quite an extended period of time. And Representative from Texas, Sheila Jackson Lee, who's picked up that torch and that mantle to, to try to move the goal, to try to move it, the ball forward. So I think, you know, a community-based model works. I think whatever you can get done in your community um, helps push forward the overall uh, aspect of reparations. So, And, and, and I just want to add to that. I know I started off. I just want to add, I mean, to me it is crazy the idea that we can't pass nationally H.R. 40. Because H.R. 40 isn't even reparations. It's just a right. committee to look at inequality and talk about what are the options of reparations. So, and I, you know, one positive aspect is that many of the Democrats who were running for president last year actually endorsed H.R. 40, which is something that hadn't happened in the past. So there's little steps of progress happening at the national level. H.R. 40 won't be reparations, but, you know, it really should be something we can at least do to help further move the ball as people like Mr. Young and other local leaders are moving the ball, uh, you know, in their areas as well. Now, what's keeping, in the, what's keeping our political leaders from having this conversation on a national level? What are some of the impediments to what we want to see take place here? If you don't mind, I'd love to jump in. Yeah. Go ahead. Sure. I, I think, you know, politically it has to be, for some folks, it has to be the right mix. I mean, there is a lot of apprehension depending on who you represent and where you're representing them at. I, I don't think that uh, for a large segment of individuals around this country, reparations is something that they want to see. Uh, there, there's all sorts of, of, of things that, that go into the apprehension of a political um, person who's in office, who, who wants to stay in office, you know, that they have to wrestle with. And so I think it's all based on, you know, the old saying that all politics is local. I think that has a lot to do with it. But I think as we continue to move, move this forward, you know, uh, in, in local municipalities across the country and, and maybe some, some state governments might take this up, it helps become a bit more palatable regardless of where you stand on the issue because ultimately you, you have to have a majority in Congress and the Senate and the President that's, that's willing to do some meaningful change uh, to make this thing happen. Yeah, and, and I'll put forward, you know, I think on an optimistic note, which I'm not known for, I'm used I'm known for being fairly pessimistic, but on an optimistic note, you know, I think that people, many people, particularly white people, have associated reparations with punishing white people today for something that happened in the past. I think there's becoming a greater acceptance of this idea of reparations as we're getting clearer. We're not talking about punishing people today for something that happened in the past, but dealing with a contemporary problem that needs to be addressed and how we're going to heal that inequality. So it's not about punishment. It's about fixing a problem. And everyone of all political stripes now at least say they want an equal opportunity society, society where race, you know, doesn't hinder you. So there should be, uh, you know, if we have that framing of reparations is to repair, not to punish, it should be something that more and more people should be able to uh, get on board with. I'm glad you brought up that point about how the perception that people have of reparations is that it's punishing someone as opposed to just bringing equality and leveling a playing field that has been grossly unfair 
since the founding of this nation. Um, when we look at you, were, uh, Diedrich, you kind of talked about this, some of the different forms that uh, reparation could take place in, whether it's monetary, whether it's symbolic, whether it's a conversation like how they did in South Africa where they had the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Um, where, this is for actually both of you, um, where do you kind of stand on what is necessary in order to repair the damage that has been done to the black community in this country? Mr. Young wants to go first. Do you want me to go first? You can go for it. Okay, I'll go for it. Um, so I would, you know, I'm fairly, I'm fairly materialist in that, you know, I think it can be great to have some conversations and I've supported, there was a documentary made about 10, 12 years ago called Traces of the Trade which looked at a white uh, family and their uh, ancestors who were some of the leading slave traders in the country and they were out of Connecticut. Uh, and, you know, look at the trade trade and they've done this whole round table discussion on race relations. So and I think it's really important to distinguish between discussing race relations and discussing race repair, right? And, you know, and, and you, there's place for both, but I just want to make sure that I do believe that it is, you know, economics, uh, investments in communities that are keeping, uh, that are maintaining inequality. It is good if we had better relations, and so we should have conversations, but I'm much more focused on the economic investment. And I do think part of that is to, uh, to, to uh, create an economic investment that will address the problem. We have to understand the problem, and part of that will be an understanding of history. So I do think we have to have a kind of understanding of uh, again, racial inequality, not just being about race relations, but about institutions, structures that have created deep socioeconomic inequality that still exists today. And now if we're going to address that, we have to, we have to create some new structures to uh, actually have a greater, a more equal society. Keith, did you have some thoughts? Sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, black people in this country, we're, we're dealing with issues that are systemic in nature. Uh, reparations is a very complex issue, and it requires a solution that looks beyond, you know, a one-time payment or check. I think, you know, when we did this here in Asheville, uh, there are a lot of folks who said, you know, what you all set out to do isn't reparations. The economic part of it, giving someone an actual check, hadn't occurred. Now, we didn't exclude that in our resolution and, and explicitly, so that can still happen. I think what has to happen is, you know, if we want to give monetary reparations to individuals around this country, we have to make sure that the bank is willing to cash the check. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, we need to be made whole in so many different areas where black Americans have great disparities. I mean, uh, healthcare, education, employment, criminal justice, business ownership, home ownership, overall equity, and of course, generational wealth. I think, one of the main highlights of that in the moment that we're, that we're in right now with COVID-19 is the major health disparities in, in the black community. So the folks that, who contract the coronavirus and actually die from it due to the lack of, of, of the, the, the healthcare system that, that you know, black Americans aren't, aren't invested in in a way that, that make us whole. And so we have to fix the system um, that's broken. You know, it, it was, well, actually, let me take that back. It's not broken. It works exactly how it was meant to work. We have to embed systemics in these things so that when monetary, uh, when monetary reparations 
comes out of it, you know, the bank will cash that check because the system will then be set up to work for those folks as well, if that makes sense to y'all. No, that, that does make sense. Um, I want to open this up to some questions that I've just received from our audience. So thank you for all of you who have submitted questions. Uh, the first one is, how can we make sure that throughout the process of implementing reparations, black communities are trusted and involved in leading the work of where and how reparations should be distributed? Yeah, and I think part of that is, I mean, and actually I'd be interested to hear how it was done at the local level. I know in HR 40, I mean, that's part of the reason why you need a committee to investigate reparations and in the in kind of theories about how this reparations would occur, there would also be a committee uh, as to how this would be implemented. And of course, it would be essential that African-Americans are well represented, I would say majority represented, and African-Americans who actually have serious understanding and knowledge of not just the history, but of the contemporary issues and what type of investments could actually move these things forward. So it's going to be, you know, essential that uh, the committees that coordinate this are predominantly African-American and have knowledge in the areas we're looking to address. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think, you know, when you look at, you know, how can the community be involved and, and what redress happens, um, yeah, how can they be made whole? I think, you know, they have, they have to be at the, on the, at the table. And regardless of where you're at, if, if you are in a community where your local elected officials or, officials or your state government is trying to implement reparations, I'm pretty sure you're going to have a group of individuals that are going to be very excited and very proactive about making their voice heard um, to tell you what specifically they want. I think there has to be some, some, some basic groundwork laid, you know, out in whatever bill or legislation that you do to address some of the disparities that I mentioned earlier. But for the most part, the community that you do this in is going to have proactive activists and community leaders and people who are willing to be involved to tell you uh, as an elected official or whomever is in the position to implement reparations, this is how we need to be made whole aside from all the other things that you may be wanting to do in your local legislation or bill. Okay. Uh, for our next question, uh, we have how, if at all, does the movement to defund police forces and transfer the money into community development intersect with reparations? Uh, I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll talk about that because we just, here in, in my city, just last night at a council meeting, we began the process where we um, reallocated 3% of our police budget. I will say this. I think the defund the police and the intersection of reparations had a lot to do with the, the fact of the disparities that continue to occur in this country with black Americans. I think, you know, again, these systemic issues that we're dealing with have been embedded for an extended period of time that, that bring us to the point to where, you know, Folks are out marching in the streets. George Floyd catalyzed the movement. And we see black men and women being killed at the hands of police. Pretty much, we can't go a month and a half without having someone else in the news. So that intersection occurs with the disparities. I will say this. I would be very careful about how we utilize the money from defunding the police, because in my community, uh, there's a big push to take some of that money 
and put it over into uh, nonprofits or trying to figure out what what uh, what the police do and how can someone else do it better. Okay, you know my thing is with the money is it doesn't matter where you move the money if the system is still set up to police me as a black man in, a, in, a, in the same way that the outcomes will remain the same, meaning we can defund the police all we want, we can move the money all we want, but when I leave a council meeting, I'm still going to get pulled over, and there is a possibility that I could get my head kicked in just based off of the systemic. So we have to be able to figure out how do we change the way that police police me or you as a black man or woman in this country. Um, but the intersection of those two are based off of the disparities that we've seen through the systemics uh, throughout the history of this country that we're dealing with right now. And I'll just, I'll just throw in there that, you know, I think a fundamental aspect of this idea of defunding the police is, to me, defunding white supremacy, right? I mean, I think the idea is that, is, is that policing has been used in a racist, racialized way to oppress communities. We, and that's true, and it's not just in policing. It's in housing, right. it's in healthcare, it's in corporate America. So we need to defund all of those things. And it doesn't mean now there's no funding in education or healthcare. No, now we need to refund it in a way that actually is uh, addressing these inequalities. So I think, you know, that fundamental aspect of it is something, you know, that I find positive in helping to deal with these issues of reparation. Okay. Uh, for our next question, um, how can monetary reparations interact with structural change to truly make things equal or equitable for the black community? For instance, does getting more money mean people will have more equal experiences in things like education and health? How does monetary reparations fix issues like existing segregation? I think I, I mentioned that earlier. Um, when you talk about the systemics that are set up, you know, to prevail in this system. Monetary reparations, in my opinion, aren't going to do, I mean, they will do some good. They will do some good. But when you look at trying to sustain generation after generation, let's say we give each, this generation a, a great deal of money or whatever. If the systemics remain the way that they are, it's probably going to be good chance that your, your, your future offspring and great grandkids are going to be back in the same position because even though you gave us a check to cash, the systemic still persisted that allowed us to be in this situation that we're currently in. And apparently it has a good track record of working for over 400 years because we're still in this same position despite the major gains that black Americans have made in this country regardless of the systemics, which I think is admirable uh, for us to begin with. But we've got to break down the system that we're dealing with right now with all these major disparities, again, in healthcare and housing and, and education and, and the wealth gap and, and so on. Yeah, and, you know, you know, some people are dismissive of this idea of writing a check. I, I'm not. Like, I wrote a piece in The Guardian about uh, – you know, $20,000 a year for 20 years for African-Americans as part, let me say, part of the reparations package. Because, because again, I am dismissive of $20,000 and you're done. And that's supposed to repair racial right. economic inequality, right? No, that's not going to repair 
racial economic inequality. And even $20,000 over 20 years uh, probably isn't enough. We need some other things as well. But the reason I wrote this is that wanted to highlight that it takes time. Like giving someone one infusion of money is not going to solve what's been happening for generations. It takes time to take, when you first get the money, you're going to be dealing with, you know, immediate needs, right? And debts that you've had, or maybe trying to find an apartment in a better place, but it's only over time that you're going to be able to use that money to actually invest in capital and get returns in. You're not going to do that the first year or the second year. So we have to be clear, this reparations is going to be long-term, uh, you know, even if checks are written, it's not going to be, and well, at least I don't think it should be a one check. It has to be over time because it's over time we got in this situation. I would just, before you go into the next question, those are very good points. I would agree with all of that. I would also say my, one of my major concerns was that, you know, for, for our, our, our bill locally here to not have local government or anyone who wanted to replicate that say, because you got a check, our obligation to the black community is done. Meaning, if you don't fix the systemics, even if you continue to give the check, people, are, people might say, our obligation to you is done. Everything is, 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 is well and good now. Kind of like, you know, when we elected President Obama, there's, oh, there's no more racism in America. We, we elected a black president. It doesn't work that way. And so I agree with everything the gentleman said um, earlier, but just wanted to add that point as well. No, it was, an, it was an excellent point. Um, I'm a strong believer that it's going to take more than just writing a check and then, say, then just wiping your hands of the issue. Like, it's just not a realistic approach, considering it took us hundreds and hundreds of years to get into this situation. Uh, for our next question, um, how do the panelists suggest addressing race relations, particularly when it comes to poor white people who racism is not tied to their access to wealth. Sure. Well, I think if you're talking about helping poor whites, whites in asset poverty, uh, generally, we're probably not talking about reparations unless you're talking about some particular group that had some historic wrong to them. But, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, that particular community you're talking about. I think, mean, you know, there has been reparations for Jewish, you know, people around the world, right? Because they did have wrongs done to them and different Europeans have had wrong to them. But uh, because you're for reparations doesn't mean that I also don't support programs that help poor people of all race that didn't have suffer through, you know, suffer racism or what have you. So I'm for very progressive policies. I'm for, you know, everything from full employment to individual de development accounts to, you know, uh, free community college, all of these things that I think will help uh, poor people or disenfranchised people of all uh, communities. Uh, we just recognize that I think the key point about reparations and someone had sent an email too about indigenous people, and I think there's a huge space for Native American reparations as well, though our focus right now is African American reparations, right. that, you know, there's uh, a, a lot of policy that needs to be set forth to deal with the broad issues, but reparations recognize that there is a particular um, uh, particular act done against particular people that need to be addressed. And that is where we're dealing with reparations. But I'm for a much broader progressive policy that brings back an economic mobility that we haven't seen even for white people in about 40 or 50 years. This has been a very regressive economy. I think the gentleman laid it out very well in, in what he said. I think, you know, when you, when you look at that, it's one of those, I think there's a great deal of, of Americans that promote uh, socioeconomic 
uh, policy that will uh, uplift everybody, no matter whether you're black, white, red, yellow, or blue. I think in the instance of reparations, um, you know, there's the saying that a rising tide lifts all boats, but I say a rising tide only lifts all boats if all boats are prepared to ride the wave. And I think when you talk about reparations to black America, we're not prepared to ride the wave because the opportunity that we have uh, set out in front of us has not been unabated. It has been with obstruction. It has been with roadblocks and it has been something that we've had to overcome as an extra step that requires equity in the system. Um, and so, you know, I always tell myself it's not up for me to educate folks who may feel that way. There's, there's a great deal of history in this country um, that goes back a long time. For instance, I hope I'm not taking up too much time, but I do want to say this. You know, back in 1860, uh, the United States had, I think, nearly 4 million slaves and translated in today's dollars, probably about those slaves were worth about three $3 billion. The value of those slaves uh, combined was greater than every asset of every financial institution, every factory, every railroad uh, during this period. And so Amer America has been catalyzed, um, the economic superpower that it is, by black Americans, black, black individuals. And so when you go back and you look at that thorough history from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to all the different things that have happened to, to black Americans, even the homeowners loan corporation back in the 1930s and 40s, when you start talking about generational wealth, we've been given opportunity, but our opportunity always comes with an asterisk. And so individuals who may have a, a bias about, you know, why, why should you get reparations and not me? I think you have to look at the history of it and understand that, you know, there's a great deal of Americans who promote uh, social economic policy that supports everyone. But in this instance, um, we've got to make sure that all boats on this situation are ready to ride the wave. Okay. And I think we have time for one final question. This one is directed to Councilmember Young. Can you say more about the recently passed resolution and your city manager's role in determining short, medium, and long-term plans? How will the city manager work with the commission? Well, in our city, we've got it set up right now where we have a specific Department of Equity and Inclusion, and their job is specifically to look at instances such as this where they can plug in. Um, our city manager and, the, and our equity department will work hand in hand to bring forth uh, suggestions, but this commission is set up in a way that it's, it's made for other municipalities in our county to join in which some have already. It's set up for private entities and businesses to join in, uh, leaders around the community to, to join in, and figure out a way together how to move forward with community input. So there are sort of two different tracks that are working. There's the internal track from our local government that's going to be looking specifically on how we can uh, implement a reparations program, but there's also going to be the external the community working together to figure out how they can also be a big part of that as well. Thank you so much. So we are out of time. We have talked so much and there's so much important information and I'm glad that we were able to be part of this conversation. I want to thank everyone who attended this discussion and a special thank you to Representative Barbara Lee 
to Diedrich Asante Muhammad, Keith Young, and the NYU Wagner and the Century Foundation team. Again, a recording of this will be made available within 48 hours following the event on tcf.org and wagner.nyu.edu, where you can learn more about future events as well. Thank you, everyone. I'm Danielle Belton from The Roots, and I'm glad you could join us. Tonight on Talking Politics, I'm Soraya Wintersmith in for Adam Riley, and we're looking at an issue that's been discussed in political circles without much real traction for more than 150 years, reparations. A little later, we'll take a deep dive into a proposal that's been put forth here in Boston and some of the many questions surrounding that. But first, a little background on how we got where we are today. The nation's first attempt at reparations came in 1865, when Union Army General William T. Sherman issued a Civil War time order, a suggestion from a group of 20 black ministers he met with in Savannah, Georgia. It was supposed to take around 400,000 acres of Confederate land and divvy it up among newly freed black families, up to 40 acres each. Just a few months later, after President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, President Andrew Johnson overturned that order. But the idea has lived on. In 1989, Congressman John Conyers Jr. of Michigan introduced a bill that sought to create a commission to study the effects of slavery and racial discrimination and suggest appropriate remedies in response. The congressman introduced that resolution named H.R. 40 in honor of those 40 acres every session for nearly three decades. Reparations now. Reparations not in the next century, not in 2185. But it wasn't until almost 20 years after that speech in April of last year that H.R. 40 finally made it out of committee, and not without heated debate. I, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. What this committee must know is that while emancipation dead bolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. Anybody who grew up during the 50s and 60s understands what the greatest generation looked like, and they were not people who were felt, felt sorry for themselves, and they would be, they would be upset to, to hear that they've been looked at as victims today. Underlying the generational trauma and exploitation is a government that abandoned its role to protect its own citizens, a government that refused to even acknowledge the humanity of my ancestors, a government that to this day refuses to acknowledge or atone for the wrongdoings of white supremacist violence. Now, almost a year later, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has announced she has the votes to pass H.R. 40 before the full House. It is America's original sin, and absolutely, it must be responded to. And there may be different ways that it is done, but I can assure you, uh, it will be an important statement. Of course, that passage hasn't happened just yet. And then there's the Senate, but the political implications of even starting to move in this direction are many. I'm joined now by Duke University economist and professor of public policy and African and African-American studies, William Darity. He's also the co-author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Professor Darity, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
That opening package got us quickly from General Sherman's wartime order to now, but a lot has happened, I think, in the last three decades politically to make these conversations even able to happen. Uh, talk about what has changed. I think there's been a sea change in public attitude, actually. Uh, if you go back to the year 2000, surveys that were taken uh, assessing American attitudes towards reparations as monetary payments to black Americans uh, for both the uh, long-term effects of slavery as well as Jim Crow uh, led to only 4% of uh, white Americans endorsing such a, such a plan. Uh, but if we get to the year 20, 2018 or so, that percentage had risen to 16. Not spectacular, but four times as high as the original proportion. And then in uh, the year 2021, at mid-year, a UMass Amherst survey indicated that uh, uh, close to 30% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for black Americans. Uh, it would be difficult to unpackage exactly what all the factors have been in creating that change in attitude, uh, but we do know that there was a, a very sharp response to the year 2020 with the combination of the pandemic and the international outcry over police killings of unarmed blacks uh, triggered by George Floyd's murder. I think the protests over those unarmed killings of black people did a lot to focus the nation's attention on the topic of equity and making things more fair. I wonder, does that, in your view, paired with the wealth gap framing of your book, make the issue more palatable to people? Uh, I'm not sure if palatable is, the, is the, the proper word, but I think that there are more and more people who have the view that this is the just and appropriate step to take. Uh, in a nation that has long denied its black American citizens whose ancestors were enslaved here full citizenship. And yet opposition still remains high. You referenced that national poll from UMass Amherst last April. It showed 62%, more than half of Americans, did not support the idea of the federal government making cash payments to the descendants of slaves, while only 38% did, I want to note that when you break that question out by race, the majority of Asians and blacks do support the idea, while the majority of Latinos and the majority of whites do not. Among all of those who oppose the idea, the most commonly cited reason was that descendants of U.S. slaves do not deserve cash payments. There were also many believe, who believe it's too hard to put a dollar amount on the impact of slavery and that the descendants of slaves are treated equally in society today. Professor Darity, I know you've faced all of these arguments before. What do you say to folks who suggest the present-day descendants of U.S. slaves don't deserve reparations or that the concept attempts to put a dollar amount to America's heinous institution? So in our book, From Here to Equality, Kirsten Mullen and I make the argument that if we were to look specifically at the racial wealth gap, the difference in net worth between blacks and whites in the United States, we would identify a key indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of what our colleague Bill Spriggs calls stolen opportunity or the cumulative intergenerational effects of white racism in the United States. And those effects are visited upon living black Americans. Uh, I would include on the list of atrocities that are relevant to the current conditions of black Americans, 
uh, I would include not only slavery, but nearly 100 years of legal segregation in the United States, a series of massacres that took place north, south, east, and west, 100 of them, between the end of the Civil War and the, uh, and the start of World War II, where black lives were taken and black property was seized and appropriated by the white terrorists. And then in the 20th century, when the federal government makes a transition from allocating assets on the basis of land distribution to supporting asset building via home ownership, the measures that the federal government took to support home ownership were heavily discriminatorily applied to the benefit of building a white middle class, but failing to build a comparable black middle class. So there's a whole array of government policies leading up to the present moment that have produced the racial wealth gap. And that gap is in the vicinity of $14 trillion, uh, somewhere along the lines of about $840,000 on average per household. Uh, and we think that that's what should set the target for a reparations plan, that uh, it should be a bill of at least $14 trillion that's placed upon the United States Congress for the purposes of addressing a debt that has not been paid for uh for, for 157 years or so. Uh, you mentioned, uh, or your, 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 your prelude mentioned at the outset that uh, in 1865, General Sherman issued Special Field Order Number 15, which was the foundation for the original act that produced the claim or promise of 40 acres uh, per, per black household. And uh, you, you noted that, that, that the, the legislation provided for 400,000 acres of land. That's not correct. It actually provided for 5.3 million acres of land stretching from the, south, uh, the sea islands of South Carolina to northern Florida, bordered by the St. Johns River. Only 400,000 acres were actually allotted to 40,000 of the freedmen uh, out of 4 million freedmen. Uh, only only 400,000 acres were allotted before President Andrew Johnson reversed the land distribution scheme and eliminated the commitment to uh, to the 40-acre land grants. Thank you so much for that clarification, Professor Darity. That's why it's wonderful to have you on. Um, going back to some of the arguments against reparations here, I want to play a clip we have of U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. No one currently alive was responsible for that, and I don't think we should be uh, trying to figure out uh, how to compensate for it. First of all, it would be pretty hard to figure out who to compensate. We've had waves of immigrants as well who've come to the country and experienced dramatic uh, uh, discrimination of one kind or another. Professor Darity, I think you've already addressed part of the two points that he's making, the enduring effects of the institution that we see today. Uh, but you know, you... I'd also like to add that uh, we do have an institution that's responsible for the atrocities he's describing that still exists, and that's the federal government. Of course. 
um, you've also come up with a pair of criteria for determining who should be paid reparations, one, that they demonstrate a connection to an ancestor that was enslaved in the U.S., and two, that they self-identified as black, Negro, or African-American for a little over a decade before any programs around reparations were implemented. Tell us a bit about your rationale for that lineage standard and that self-identity standard. It solves the problem um, Leader McConnell is raising, um, but it, I think folks would also argue it leaves quite a bit of people out. Well, if we estimate that there are approximately 45 million blacks living in the United States today, uh, if approximately 10% are folks who arrived after the passage of the civil rights legislation, there, there were very few uh, black immigrants to the United States prior to the passage of the civil rights legislation, probably less than 1% of the, uh, of the black population in the United States. We're ultimately talking about 40 million people who would be eligible recipients for, uh, for reparations. So I, it's not clear that we're leaving a lot of people out, uh, but the people who are being left out are the folks who arrived here uh, long after the cumulative effects of federal policies on the determination of black wealth had been put into place. Uh, these are also individuals who do not share an ancestry that is linked to the newly emancipated who were denied the 40-acre land grants at the outset. Uh, that's what created the debt that's relevant to the problem or the case for reparations. Uh, and that debt is the debt that is owed to the individuals who are descendants of the persons who were formerly enslaved in the United States. Professor Darity, we have about 30 seconds left here, but I want to make sure that I ask you, where does your passion to keep pushing for reparations come from, and how have you not lost hope all of this time? Well, as I said at the outset, there's actually been a sea change in American attitudes in the proper direction. So that actually gives me hope. But uh, about 30 years ago, when I first started working on this issue, I reached the conclusion that since it is so much the right thing to do, it's something that I would need to work for and, and continue to work for, regardless of how long the odds are of reparations actually happening. Uh, America will never provide its black citizens with the full material conditions for citizenship unless it provides reparations at the national level. Professor William Darity, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Turning closer to home now, here in Massachusetts, political winds have also shifted, prompting a few cities and towns to take actions on reparations. In Amherst this week, town officials voted unanimously to start drafting a request for a special state law that would define reparations as a public purpose. That would allow the town to start distributing money from its reparations fund without funneling the cash through a nonprofit or running afoul of the current state law that prohibits spending municipal dollars on private or individual purposes. This does feel like the way to most directly benefit the African heritage community with the most flexibility um, and keep the most sort of control um, within the African heritage community. And also protect the town um, because we know that there will be legal and all sorts of opposition to 
distributing reparation benefits. Now, the town is just getting started with drafting this request for a special law, which must be approved by the state legislature and the governor. That, of course, could prompt a broader discussion and carry implications for the other cities and towns that have begun work on local reparations, like Boston, where the city council is currently weighing a measure to set up a commission to study whether, why, and how Boston should move to implement reparations. We have witnessed segregation and injustice, but let's be clear, the solution to injustice is justice. And the solution to segregation is community coming together as one to fight towards a common goal. Now that reparations commission hasn't been formally approved yet, so there's a lot to explore. I'm joined now by two people framing the conversation, Jemadari Kamara, chair of the Africana Studies Department at UMass Boston and a co-author of this proposal, and Temi Tai, Deputy Director of King Boston, a program of the Boston Foundation, which would have a seat on the proposed 15-member commission. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Temi Tai, I want to start with you and also get Professor Kamara to weigh in. We heard that a lot has happened nationwide to get Congress to the point of possibly approving a study of reparations. Um, but there's a lot that's happened locally, like here in Boston, to get us to this point, too. Talk about some of the political factors at play here. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, it's super excited for what's happening in Boston. Advocates have been at this um, for many years. And within the last two years, right, within our pandemic, racial reckoning, has brought together this moment of hope and possibility. Um, and so we've been um, leveraging leveraging this particular moment, pushing on the city council. We've got you featured on uh, Councilor Mejia and under her leadership to put forth hearings around reparations and to move from not just studying, but actually taking, taking action. Um, so we've had a very robust community of uh, scholars, activists, Dr. Kamara, you know, as we stand on his shoulders, stand by him. Um, in this longtime effort and fight for reparations um, here locally. And um, it's, it's going to happen in the city. Professor Kamara, would you add anything to that? Yes, the struggle in, in which we've been engaged uh, is one that includes uh, a broad range of community-based organizations, as well as now uh, elected officials who are bringing this to the forefront. Uh, we've had uh, a number of organizations who were suggesting should serve on the uh, commission once it is established, including the NAACP. Of course, it has a long history in this work. The uh, New Democracy Coalition that's been in the forefront very recently with regard to uh, activities around Faneuil Hall and other community organizing, uh, as well as researchers at uh, the institution. Uh, and I think it is important to uh, focus on the idea of the commission that we're putting forward uh, through the ordinance on Boston as directly linked to the challenge that was established first in the 20th century here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You mentioned um, H.R. 40, the national legislation. In fact, H.R. 40, or the bill that is in the House of Representatives, was modeled on the legislation filed in 1988 Bill Owen. Uh, by, at that time, Senator Bill Owen. And H.R. Uh, 40 has now come to um, fruition, and we hope it will be passed in the House at, at least. But the model, it's important. 
originated here in the 20th century in Massachusetts with his legislation, which was never heard in the Commonwealth, but we at the local level are pushing this forward. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think there are a number of folks who would argue that because Massachusetts was one of the first states to abolish slavery, that means this state and this city, in their view, bears very little in the way of responsibility for the harms of slavery. Do either of you ever get asked what is it that Boston did to warrant this exploration and the possible payment of reparations to black residents? Either of you. I mean, we were the first to abolish, but also first to legalize slavery. Um, so we have a very long history to repent, repair and to repent from. And we have to remember when we're talking about reparations, yes, it stems from MAFA, from chattel slavery. But we're talking about a whole 400 plus years of Jim Crow segregation, the, un, the continuing equities that stem from the, the notion of the supremacy of, the white, of whites over black. And so in that case, um, Boston is culpable. Boston's infrastructure, um, economic systems have all been built on the backs of stolen labor. Um, and so we cannot deny that and just say, yes, we abolished slavery. So that's so much in our past. Um, we're very much implicated in, in, in this country's um, history. The issue of uh, the intergenerational wealth transfers, I think, are exceedingly important. The... Well, slavery has been the specific issue that an unpaid labor, obviously, during this period, uh, there's a wealth of documentation focusing on, um, as it has been entitled, slavery by another name, which is the last uh, century and a half, the exploitation of black labor uh, in this country. Uh, there's a book by that title by uh, Douglas Blackman that documents uh, the positioning and marginality of black labor throughout the century and a half so that it institutionally has continued. And I think one of the things we're really focusing upon is the systemic and institutional racism that has been embodied by state policies um, and has impacted both the uh, expansion of wealth in the private sector as well as the nonprofit institutions um, that are also culpable uh, in the issue. Turning now to the question of who would be eligible for reparations, I think this is a hard one to sort out in a place like Boston where our black population is so varied from folks all across the diaspora. And to that point, I wonder if either of you agree with Professor Darity's assessment of how reparations would be allotted to folks who can demonstrate a connection to an ancestor who was enslaved in the U.S. and folks who self-identify as black, African-American, or Negro for the last 10 to 12 years. Do we like that criteria, either of you? Professor Kamara, let's start with you. The issue as we begin to... Uh, look and explore solutions to this uh, long-standing problem. I think we need to reflect upon in a broader way. Uh, we have to rethink the entire question of solution. And while we're using reparations, which is a tool of public policy, it has implications both for the private sector and nonprofit sectors, as well as the public sector. And in that rethinking, there are both residual collective benefit as well as individual ones. We're talking about a system uh, of uh, institutional oppression that is not 
uh, only focused on Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the United States, but it is global. It is the, the functioning of the expansion of monopoly capital is what in fact produced slavery in the very beginning. And therefore we have to consider capitalism as a global system and how do we engage now in solutions that have both individual and collective benefit. That's why we're looking to a commission to help us in this process as a community uh, that has been harmed to begin to address collective solutions to such a problem. And I think our rethinking will allow us to focus on um, broader kinds of models that would not only be tied individually to the individual harm, but the collective community harm that would allow us perhaps to begin to think about land trusts and other kinds of alternatives that could have collective community benefits uh, as well as individual. Tammy Tai, it sounds like Professor Kamara is saying there needs to be a global framing of this issue. What do you think? No, absolutely, absolutely concur. Um, when we talk about reparations, we have to underscore reparations as a process, not just a one-time, one-and-done transactional kind of notion. Um, and so as a part of reparations, yes, there will be opportunities to consider individual um, recom recompense um, that will maybe come in financial financial ways for which we'll have to define some type of criteria. But the overall goal of reparations is this community healing, right? So this rethinking, reframing of reparations as this full process of community repair um, begs us to consider more than just uh, the singular lineage um, question. And as you said, right, our, the black population in Boston is very diverse. And so we, we want to have conversations that unite rather than divide in face of this um, in face of this conversation and this movement and the piece before the council now would give this 15-member commission a lot of space to define reparations and start devising how that might take shape talk about some of the ways we've seen reparations manifest in other places like how might that look and what are you too supportive of well i think the manifestation of um, the process that is currently going on we will see in a variety of different locations. Some of them are municipal, such as other communities, uh, Evanston, uh, Illinois is one, Asheville. Um, there are state level commissions, such as in California, the state of California currently has passed a, a bill with where there is a commission actively engaged in exploring these kinds of issues. Also at the international level, uh, we have uh, a national uh, African-American Reparations Commission, but it is modeled on the Caribbean community or CARICOM commission that is exploring these issues engaged with European countries. So this is not just a domestic question. It has international implications for all of those actors who were involved initially in the expansion of the, the Maafa or the slave trade that produced the consequences that we are experiencing in the wealth gap that we have here in Boston. We're very familiar with the uh, Federal Reserve Report mm -hmm. that identified the, the domestic gap uh, of $247,500 as the median income of white households and black households is eight. I mean, that is, that's, that kind of uh, disparity obviously produces 
uh, a, a community which has the, the absence of a base of wealth to be able to generate and contribute at the level in which we could expand the entire economy if opportunities were opened at that level. In Evanston, uh, they have focused on the specific question of housing and have now generated a means through an innovative use of uh, a cannabis tax to repair the injustices around that occurred in the housing market for individual households. California is exploring other options that have uh, will be specific to the resolution of the problems of the residents there. Professor, I want to get Tammy Tai to weigh in on a different question before we wrap up. (laughs) We don't have any statewide polling, but uh, Tammy Tai, if you had to guess, what percentage of Massachusetts folks would support the idea of reparations? When we're talking about financial cash payments. um, Very quickly. Yeah, I would think maybe 30 to 40 percent. Excellent. Jamadari Kamara, Tammy Tai, we have to leave it here. There's obviously more to discuss, but thank you so much for being with us. Thank Thank you. you. That's it for tonight. Adam will be back next week. Tell us what you think. The addresses are on your screen. Thank you for watching and good night. Support for this program is provided by Afternoon, everyone. I'm Stephen Henderson, and welcome to our American Black Journal in Bridge Detroit Town Hall on reparations for African Americans. Thanks for taking a break in the middle of your afternoon to join us for this really important conversation. Over the next hour, we're going to talk about what is owed to the descendants of African slaves and the survivors of Jim Crow and the other discrimination that has held our nation in its clutches since the beginning. How should the United States compensate African-Americans? And if we do engage in some experiment with reparations, American reparations, will that help close the wealth gap, for instance, between whites and blacks? We're also gonna talk about this new Detroit task force that is gonna explore reparations to address past discrimination right here in our own city. So. As always, if you have a question or you want to just talk about this issue with us during this conversation, all you have to do is submit them in the comment section, and I will try to get to all of them during the hour. We want to get started with a look at what Detroiters themselves think about reparations. American Black Journal producer A.J. Walker got a random sampling of opinions out on our streets. Take a look. While hard at work, Timothy Albert stops to weigh in on a serious question. 
Do you think descendants of slaves should get reparations? Sure. We should get uh, checks from the government or give us some grants so we can start us our, our business set and everything and pay our employees. Yes, we need help. Every other race get it. Why can't we get it? We caught up with Marcus Smith, who agrees. I do believe descendants of slaves should get reparations. Actually, my grandmother was a sharecropper, and her father was a slave in uh, Selma, Alabama. So I believe that they should because my grandmother is still alive, and the impacts that she had to go through are still taught and remembered by her. I do feel like reparations should come in the monetary form. Holocaust survivors have been given billions of dollars from the German government for the horror committed against Jewish people. During World War II, 100,000 people of Japanese descent in the United States were deemed a threat to national security and forcibly relocated from their homes and detained in internment camps. Years later, President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, which offered a formal apology and paid $20,000 to each survivor. Native Americans have also received compensation for the atrocities committed against them. Recognized tribes are eligible for funding and services through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Tax preparer Dwayne Mathis thinks descendants of American slaves should get reparations. He thinks it would help close the wealth gap between African Americans and others. I think that reparations should um, be a set amount of money uh, to whereas at least people can get into business and kind of level the playing field as well. He says he would definitely be entitled if reparations ever came to pass. One of my grandfathers was a slave as well. He was from Macon, Georgia. His name was John Henry Mathis. But for some, the question of reparations is a difficult one. Do you think descendants of slaves should be entitled to reparations? Yes, yes. Why do you think that? Well, it's really a good question, though. Like, it's really a good question, and I answered it too quick. I had to, I got to think about it. That's a good question. I have to research that because I, I wouldn't know how to answer it. I'm, I'm a right now person. Like anything in the past, it happens, but I'm more of a focus on right now person, and and I just pray for the past because I'm a, I'm a man of God. So I pray for the past, and whatever the past receive. That's what the prayers have, have to get, so that's what I'm on. Sam Carter supports reparations, but he doesn't think it should come in the form of money. I think they should get something. Uh, giving people money doesn't help them. But the fact that we have to pay so much for education, we have to have so many skills and still don't get jobs that pay us enough, uh, I kind of wonder what would satisfy Free college would probably help, uh, something like that, but just giving people money, uh, I don't think we'd appreciate it. Michael Coley says reparations are badly needed. We over here struggling to find jobs. You understand know what I'm saying? And I think that that is not right for us black folks that's in America that's really struggling out here. Okay, so as you can see from A.J. Walker's piece, this is a pretty complicated issue, and there are a lot of different opinions about whether this is a good idea, or even more importantly, how you would implement something like this if we decided to do it. How would you make it make a difference for African Americans? There's also real questions about what are you, what are you creating reparations for? Is it slavery? 
Uh, or is it also the centuries now of discrimination, uh, de jure and de facto, that have gone on since slavery? Should there be reparations, for instance, for Jim Crow? Should there be reparations for the violent pushbacks against the civil rights movement and the struggles that have happened since then? We want to get to all of those questions uh, this hour. And we want to start with somebody who has been talking about this issue for a really, really long time. Reverend Dr. Joanne Watson served as an aide uh, to late Congressman John Conyers, who was the first person to introduce a bill in 1989 calling for Congress to study the whole idea of reparations. She also sat on the Detroit City Council and led the Detroit NAACP. She is one of the great thinkers here in the city of Detroit, somebody who knows our history and cares deeply about our futures. Uh, today, she is the senior pastor at Westside Unity Church. Uh, Reverend Watson, it's always good to see you, but it's especially good to see you today uh, for this conversation. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me on this very important topic. I've been involved on the reparations issue since my youth. Uh, I was absolutely mentored by some of the greatest uh, reparations freedom fighters, uh, Mario Bedelli, then known as Richard Henry, uh, Reverend Milton Henry, Gaidio Bedelli, Re reparations Ray Jenkins got his title from me uh, when he would call into my radio show talking about reparations every day. Uh, I also was greatly influenced by my family. My great-grandmother uh, from Mississippi, Greenwood, Mississippi, had a share, uh, a man who was uh, receiving the crop that she planted and, and uh, was able to reap, and one year didn't give her her money back. She used some unmissionary type language in describing that theft, and he went to his wagon to get a weapon to shoot her and my mother, who was five years old at the time. My great-grandmother put her hand in her bosom, and she told him, you step one more step toward me, you're going to step to hell this morning. He backed up. He backed up and rode off and threatened her and said, you know I'm coming back. So my great-grandmother and my mother, they had to leave Mississippi in the dark of night and uh, made their way to Memphis, Tennessee, and eventually made their way to Detroit which is why I'm here and fighting yeah. for reparations. I, I think that many of our own people don't know that uh, the Confederates who lost the Civil War, they received reparations. Many, many populations have received reparations, but not Africans who helped build this country. And the whole country benefited from the unpaid labor of African people who were kidnapped. And I, I, I prefer to say people were enslaved and not say slaves. And I refer to those who thought they owned slaves. They were not masters. They were enslavers. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. So, so I, I want to have you talk specifically about some of the questions that we saw come up in the piece uh, by A.J. Walker. People asking, okay, if you were to, to put together a package of reparations, what should it look like? Should it be money? Should it be uh, opportunity? Uh, should it be, should it include uh, the dismantling of the structures of inequality and discrimination that still exist now? Are all of those things, things we ought to have on the table when we're talking about this? I think it gets confusing for people when they think it's just about money. 
Uh, all of those things should be on the table, but it should include money. Uh, but when you consider that the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of the United States, was paid for by profits from the slave trade, doubled the size of the United States. When one com considers that when uh, Frederick Douglass negotiated the involvement of black men in the Civil War, on the Union side, of course, that helped to create the wherewithal, the momentum for the North to win the Civil War. The North was losing. The Union Army was losing until black men, black men, and a black woman named Harriet Tubman, who was a scout for the Union Army, got engaged. So I, I think that uh, it can be talked about in dollars and cents, but also in terms of land, in terms of education, in terms of taxes, and uh, many other elements that should be addressed by a commission. There is H.R. 40 has finally been approved by the Congress of these United States. I believe the President of the United States should write an executive order to bring, to bring H.R. 40 home, which was introduced by a Detroitian named Congressman John Conyers. So um, you, you have been working on this a long time, as I said, and I wonder if you can talk about how it feels for you. How, how does it? How does it feel for you? You know, when 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 you first started talking about this back in the in the eighties, I mean, I think people were astonished by the very idea, and people were offended. Today, we're having an actual conversation about this, and I think it's not unreasonable to say that uh, we'll come to some solution here, maybe in our lifetimes. Is that a surprise to you? Uh, no, I'm not surprised at all. I, I believe that when you organize and when you work, uh, things begin to move. I also believe that there's a hand uh, from the Almighty on this issue because it's, uh, it is uh, absolutely the same kind of uh, uh, movement you saw when the Con Congress first put forth the King Federal Holiday Bill. Many people said it will never happen. It won't be done. However, he kept introducing it. The same thing has happened with H.R. 40. It's been introduced every year since 1989. And Congressman Connors introduced it at the behest of Reparations Ray Jenkins, who said Japanese Americans just got $20,000 on a letter of apology from the United States. Why haven't African Americans been acknowledged and been put on the table for reparations? So I believe it's going to happen. I see it. I believe it's going to happen in our lifetime, Stephen. So I wonder if you can also talk about what you think uh, the remaining challenges are. We've gotten this far. People, I think, are much more open to the idea of at least discussing this. Uh, how do we pull it across the finish line uh, and get to the point where, where African Americans are, are, are being given what, what we're owed? America will never be fully healed from, from this original sin of enslavement. And until reparations is, that is rightfully due is afforded to the Africans who helped build this country. It's not a handout. It's a dead old. It's not a handout. It's a dead old. And that, that has been recognized as a recognized legal principle that has been applied to every other group of people that has been wronged except of African descent. And it's, a, it's time for those persons who've been on the fence and say they don't know to look at the precedents that has already been laid. There's historical precedents for reparations. 
there's a legal precedence for reparations. There's a moral precedence for reparations. And it's a debt way overdue. The time is now. It's not a handout. It's a debt owed. Hey, uh, Reverend Joanne Watson, it's always great to talk with you. But again, especially talk to you about this subject, which I know has been a central part of your work uh, for much of your career. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, last November, voters in Detroit overwhelmingly passed a proposal that called for the creation of a task force to explore reparations to compensate for the city's past discriminatory policies. And if you don't know uh, about those things, uh, there are lots of resources around where you can research the history of discrimination in Detroit, housing discrimination, all kinds of other job discrimination, things like that, but also the history of slavery here in the city of Detroit. Yes, uh, there were enslaved people who were here in Detroit, uh, and there were enslavers here in Detroit. And reconciling just the history of all of those things and how we deal with that is one of the things that I think could be part of uh, the exercise of thinking about reparations. Joining me now is Lauren Hood. Uh, she's a major contributor to the analysis behind the proposal that Detroiters passed uh, last year, and she's the chair of the uh, Detroit Planning Commission. Uh, Lauren, welcome to the welcome to the town hall. Thank you. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> also here with us is Keith Williams. He is chair of the Michigan Democratic Party's Black Caucus. Keith, welcome. How you doing, my friend? Yes, it's good to see you both. Uh, okay, so Lauren, um, I'm going to start with you. Let's talk about what Detroiters approved last year and what the status is of this task force. What will we see in the coming months? Well, Stephen, it's a challenge. Um, <laughs> it always is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll talk a little bit about this group of us that meets. So there's myself, Cousin Keith over here, um, Council President Sheffield and her people. Um, you know, uh, we had Jamon Jordan in the conversation earlier for the historical lens. There's some other grassroots activists that have been coming to the conversation. So we're kind of a de facto steering committee. And like you said, have been engaged since November. So we as a group are trying to make the most um, authentic and inclusive process possible, but there's always a tension with getting something done and being inclusive. Because the longer it takes to do something, the more inclusive you can be. But then we're also um, contending with, you know, this pressure from folks to, like, see something happening. Um, it's always my contention, like, the, the subject of reparations, like, this is sacred work. We're overturning, you know, generations of trauma here. Like, this is something that's going to take a lot of time to get it right. But folks are like, where's my check? So there's this tension of, of those two things. And I think what, what our group is trying to consider is what can we do now? You know, we need some direct service because there are people struggling now, but also create a long enough runway where we can get this right. Because this, this is sacred work. It's, there's a lot tied up in here. It's not just like a wealth gap. It's like a hope gap, a worthiness gap, a self-respect gap. There's a lot tied into to what reparations can and should do. And we should be clear, uh, what, what Detroiters approved last year was just the initial step, right? Just to take a look. What are the things that might go into 
a consideration of reparations. What is the history that brought us to, to where we are and then get to, okay, well, here are some ways we can, we can make up for that. So the patience you're talking about uh, was wrapped in the ballot proposal itself uh, and is really important for all of us to keep in mind. And we need education, too. So, you know, you saw that guy in the opening segment when he was asked about reparations. It's not that people don't get it. It's like we haven't had the time to think about it. We haven't had the luxury or the privilege of time to really dig into the history and dig into the possibility. So we need a, a huge educational campaign before people can even ask for something. Uh, Keith, uh, the Black Caucus commissioned a poll that showed majority of Detroiters support reparations for past discriminatory, discriminatory housing policies and practices here in the city. Uh, talk about those feelings and what you feel those reparations could look like. All of us remember, I think, uh, the, the, the struggle that African Americans had to own homes in, in many places here in Detroit. Uh, I think a lot of people know about the struggles that we have right now keeping homes in the city of Detroit. Um, tell us about what Detroiters think about what we should do about all that. You know, when we got involved in this, uh, I, I got involved because of Robert Ruth Simmons. I was looking at Channel 7 one night, and she was on, and she was talking about this little town in Everstill, Illinois. I was so impressed. After the show, my wife was saying, I said, I'm getting ready to call this young lady. So I inboxed her, and she called me back. And so I was inspired by, she took a little city of 75,000 folks, 80% African-American, and created this new economic engine. And so I said, if she can do it here, then why can't we do it in Detroit? And then, so I got involved. Then to, to, to delve off into this, you've got to know the history of Detroit. Like you said in your opening, from slavery, then 19, uh, 1900. There were 6,000 blacks. Then you go to 1931. That's when the influx of blacks came from the South and then to come to work for a Fort Motor Company. Then they had to have a place to stay, and they moved us over there, black, black bottom and things like that. And so I got to sin. So I got to think about how much wealth was stolen from us, okay? And so if you look at it, the black bottom and then this 375 movement, then 1941 on Burwood Street, how they used federal dollars under the auspices of urban development as well as they did Black Bottom. We couldn't have, we didn't have a place to stay. And they did it with ordinances, restricted covenances, and, um, and, and using the words slums so they can use it as uh, urban development money. And then I got more deep, deep into it than I realized up until 1971. Black folks could not live in Rosedale Park because of restrictive covenants. And so I look at it like this. I don't look at it as a cash handout. I look at it as a re redevelopment of the city and African-Americans leading the charge on it, such as housing. Housing is where all the wealth was lost. And so, uh, like Lawrence said, this is sacred stuff. I cried. I cried when I got involved in this. And when we did that poll, I knew when we did that ballot, and this, you know, this is the first in the, in the, in, of this kind in the country. I just came from December 12th. I was at a reparations convention sponsored by Robert Ruth Simmons in Everstill, Illinois. It was 40 cities. Detroit is the true chocolate city. San Francisco, L.A., they got black folks, but nothing like Detroit. And so I said if Detroit can be the lead dog in this initiative, 
if we just come together, like Lawrence said, we're going through some family issues right now, and we're going to get through it, you know, when you get us all together as a family, but it's all about love. But now our language, language says the city council got to set the task force up to make recommendations on economic development and housing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lauren, uh, we've got a question from Kelly on uh, on Facebook, and I want to put it to you. She says, why do you think there's so much resistance to reparation? I think that's an interesting question to talk about the things that we are uncomfortable talking about, right? Uh, that, that it when depends race- on, yeah, which, which group are we talking resistance from? I think black folks resist it because we have a lot of pride for what we've been able to accomplish. And again, like Mama Watson said, and we all say it's not a, it's not a handout, it's, you know, for, for work served. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of pride on the part of black folks. I think that other groups, I would just say anti-black racism. Like in your opening segment, you talked about the other ethnic groups that, you know, were compensated for their, their pain and trauma and time served. And I think if you, you know, apples to apples, Harm done, compensation. What's the, what's the differing factor in those groups and us other than, you know, our, our color? I really think it's specific anti-black racism that people don't, don't want us to have anything. No, I, I think there's also, uh, there's a dimension of this that differs from other, some of these other groups, right? After the Holocaust took place uh, during World War II, uh, uh, the Germans were sorry for what they did. And they were made to be sorry by an international community. Uh, but there, there, was, there was a feeling that they did owe something uh, to the Jews who were, who were victims. Uh, after uh, Japanese were interred here in, um, in, um, in this country during the, during the war, eventually there was uh, an apologetic um, imperative to try to make that better. I, I, I don't think that has happened quite yet uh, with African Americans. It certainly didn't happen after the Civil War. Uh, no. There was a backlash that 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 was angry that African Americans were free and wanted to compete for all the resources that everybody else did. You move up through Jim Crow, uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, today, we're fighting about uh, the language that the President of the United States is using to describe his next Supreme Court nominee, who would be the first. African American woman uh, to sit on that court. I think that's part of what is missing. There, uh, there is not uh, an imperative to be sorry. That's correct. But what is at the root of that? Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> you know why, why? Why? Why is that? I think also there there needs to be some education around what our contributions were. Like even for Black folks. Um, Everything I know about black history, I learned starting at the age of maybe 35, you know, through my own um, research. So what does it look like when we have a comprehensive understanding of what our contributions actually were? So, you know, we were doing a reparations program at the Charles H. Wright, and one of the participants had his grandfather show up, who was an actual sharecropper. So he walked us through his day as a sharecropper. After his testimony, we all understood why we were worthy of this compensation. But everybody doesn't have access to stories like that. But what if everybody did? Yeah, yeah. So, so Keith, uh, there's another question actually from the same person about where you start this conversation about 
uh, about reparations, uh, who is owed what? Uh, and, and you were talking uh, just a, a minute ago about how recent a lot of the discrimination was, that uh, this is not talking about ancient history. This is not talking about slavery and its after effects in isolation. It's talking about how slavery led to so many other things um, that even today hold African-Americans uh, back uh, from participating fully in, in American society. And housing, of course, uh, is, is the place where I think it's easiest for people to start understanding that, that, that housing still is deeply imbalanced in, in this country. Even the economics of Hastings Street, Hastings Street was the area where the black folks did their commerce. In Detroit, we all spread it all over the place. Now we've got the avenue of fashion. I just think that the money should go into housing so people can have, lay their head and build some wealth. And then we need an economic engine. You know, with all this new creativity out here, these kids are entrepreneurs, they should be able to, uh, they should be able to be, go out there and, and produce a product and, and sell their product to make money off of it. Uh, you know, this is not about a handout. Uh, this is about a hand up, and we're not asking for somebody to do something for us. And then you got some African Americans going through that psychological problem. They don't want no, they don't want to be under uh, the auspice of thinking that somebody gave them something. But guess up, guess what? It would take us 233 years to catch up with white America and their wealth. And so somehow we got to close this gap. And why not in Detroit? Why not in Washington, D.C., where we know, I grew up in Detroit. I was born and raised on, in, in Black Bottom. I was born in Women's Hospital. The street, East, uh, uh, East 4th Street, is still there. It's old King's Football, it's King's Football Field where we live. And so I came from that. We moved from there to Northwest Detroit in 1957. So I get it. But, you know, currently we got this, this tax problem on the 600000 of the, the, the assessment part of it, and we need to do something about that. So it's, a, it's like a smorgasbord of things, but I think housing and, and economic development should drive this agenda. And if there's some, and I'm kind of leery about getting somebody cash, you know, because I remember some years ago when, when General Motors gave all them guys those TRW checks. They went out and bought cars and things like that instead of well, investing in money in stocks and bonds and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Lauren, I, I want to talk to you a little about that as well, um, the scope of what we should be thinking about when we talk about reparations, uh, not just money, not just opportunities, um, but the dismantling of the current imbalances. Uh, one of the things... One of the hurdles, I guess, that, that I feel like you have is convincing people that there are still things in place that perpetuate these gaps, that perpetuate uh, the, the, the inequality. And so when you're thinking about what a solution might be, I, I feel like you have to, to take all of those different kinds of things into account. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, I think it's around education. It's not readily understandable for people the way that some of these structures, um, you know, serve as barriers to certain groups of people. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's so much to learn. <laughs> and I think that, 
Yeah, the, the, the check, like I said, we need to do something right now, but we also need to create a runway. We need to be thinking about, like, what kind of institutions outside of governments owe us something. So locally, when, when Jaman tells me things like the free press used to be a slave, ever, a runaway slave advertising newspaper, or like Henry Ford used to only service black people in the basement, um, what other local institutions owe black folks something. So it's, I'm not just looking at city government, I'm looking at everybody. <laughs> Anybody that had a role in marginalizing, oppressing, um, you know, keeping us for the full expression of our humanity that we deserve. Yeah. And, and in many communities right now, I think one of the things that's, that's happening is those institutions themselves are sometimes uh, under pressure, uh, taking on that task on their own and coming up with... Well, that's what the, co the commission or the task force will be tasked with doing, is holding <laughs> these institutions accountable. So anybody that got up on that dais with the mayor after George Floyd and said, we stand with you in the name of racial equity, I think that is, that's your opportunity. Anybody, anybody whose organization CEO is up there is some, somebody you can hold accountable for how they, they behave with the, their constituents of color. Uh, Keith, uh, I'm going to end with you. Uh, tell me what you expect out of all this. Uh, what, what do you think the end of this all looks like? That we get repaid for the harm that was caused to African Americans. And by the way, Steve, if you want to start purging calf tech, Livernois, the names, and streets, schools, they need a whole new purging of this city because a lot of folks had their hand in causing the pain and the harm in African Americans. All I want to see is black folks get repaid and we get our dignity back and we can have a, a brighter future for all our kids. I'm, I'm 66 now, and I went to the whole side of the city of Detroit. I just want to see a vision of, of hope. And like and my acronym for hope is this, helping, helping our people elevate. I want to see people elevate to a new standard of living and where they can prosper and they can enjoy the American dream. Yeah. Okay, uh, Lauren Hood, Keith Williams, uh, great to have both of you here uh, to talk about this. Thanks so much for joining us. So supporters of reparations argue that centuries of slavery left blacks economically disadvantaged. And of course, we've been talking about the things that have happened since slavery ended um, that have continued that inequality, or in some cases, uh, made it worse. My next guest has done extensive research on why African Americans need reparations to make things more equal. Please welcome Andre Perry. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Andre, great to see you. Hey, great to see you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for, for, thanks for being uh, here with us. Uh, so based on your research and, of course, on your opinion, uh, tell us, why do African Americans need reparations? And if we don't do that, what is the, the, the likelihood that we solve the inequality that we all live with? Well, our inability to pay the unpaid debt is still with us that the racial wealth divide where we see white families median wealth eight times that of black families is a direct result of the systemic uh, um, exclusion of assets or uh, of subsidies that we are owed. 
um, and this continues to this day. Um, in addition, the, the sort of framework, of you will, of denying um, African Americans uh, public subsidies that, they, that other populations enjoy was taken up in, in, in different ways in um, more contemporary contexts. Um, so you have housing discrimination, you have criminal justice um, bias, um, you have uh, business discrimination. Um, all of these follow a certain path of, uh, of, of that, that, that uh, black people were denied um, um, what they are due. And, and so um, there's a real cost um, that black people still have to pay, a real penalty. You know, my research shows that homes in black neighborhoods um, um, compared to areas where there are few black people in them are underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home. Cumulatively, that's about 156 billion in lost equity in black neighborhoods. And, and, and this is particularly true in, in Detroit where, one, where so many black people used to own homes but could not hold on to them because of the, the, the housing crisis. And, and let me just bring this back to wealth. When you have less wealth, it's harder to withstand the economic shocks that inevitably occur. The, those who had wealth could survive the housing crisis better. Those who had wealth could survive the pandemic, can, um, can um, withstand uh, um, environmental hurdles. And so that lack of wealth um, really predicts for lower outcomes um, in every other area. So, you know, we, 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 this is an issue that has not gone away. People say, oh, I didn't own any slaves. Well, um, the impact of slavery, the impact of Jim Crow racism, the impact of housing discrimination is still with us. And by the way, we're not asking uh, uh, individuals to pay for pay reparations. We're asking the federal government, state governments, local municipalities to pay, and also institutions because um, we can't let them off the hook. So colleges and universities, universities churches. Um, so I'm encouraged by what's happening all across the country with these local efforts, but um, we, um, hopefully they will move up to the national level. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about the practical end of this with you uh, as well, um, the form of reparations. So you just threw out a number. $156 billion, that gap between uh, what uh, white families in America have been able to, to earn through property ownership and what, what African Americans have been able to do. That's a, I mean, it's a huge number, um, but we throw huge numbers all the time yeah. <laughs> out with, with, with federal spending. But, but what is the way, what is the way to make up that gap? Is it through some sort of payment or is is there a more creative uh, spectrum of things that we ought to be thinking about to, to make that number go away well we, remember reparations is, is mostly about the claims people can have around um, systemic oppression so there are different types of claims made so when you're talking about slavery and unpaid labor you you're talking about a check when you're talking about housing discrimination you're talking about down payment assistance and and the like um, and and you know so it really depends on the claim you know my colleague Rashawn Ray and I put out a report not that long ago um, where we outline a, a series of steps including cash payments um, but also including scholarships 
um, uh, to make college free. Uh, we also include um, a, a business grants um, because we know that businesses were denied opportunities. Uh, um, uh, we also in include other subsidies. So I, I think it's a, a range of approaches at, coming from multiple levels. Again, the you know when you're talking about housing discrimination, for instance, there was housing discrimination on the part of federal, state, and local uh, ordinances. So uh, entities. So all of those institutions, all of those um, levels of government have some responsibility to pay. So it's going to look different. And that $156 billion, it was only in uh, the case of housing devaluation. And, and I just want to put this in perspective. In just that one area, $156 billion would have financed um, more than 4 million Black-owned businesses based upon the average amount Black people used to start their firms. It would have paid for 8 million four-year degrees based upon the average amount of a four-year public education. It would have replace the pipes in Flint, Michigan, 3,000 times over, covered nearly all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's double the, the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. So when you're talking about reparations, which falls in anywhere in the area of uh, $3 to $17 billion, uh, trillion dollars, um, based upon the model you use, um, you could see a dramatic shift in how um, uh, black people live. And, and again, I, I just want to emphasize this. Um, um, and I say this like it keeps my teeth white, that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. That, that when, when people talk about what's wrong with, with uh, uh, black communities, they blame black people. Tic Tac Han, the, the Vietnamese philosopher um, who recently died, once said that if you are growing ahead of lettuce, and it's not growing, you don't blame the lettuce. You look to see if it's getting sunlight. You look to see if it's get the soils enriched, if it's getting rainwater. You don't blame the lettuce. But when it comes to black communities, we're constantly blaming the lettuce and not looking at the policies that, it, that still inflict harm and penalty on us. So for me, reparations is, is about healing, is a moral debt, as was mentioned. It's a fiscal one. And, and, and this one more point, um, that this idea that we can't handle a check is ridiculous. You know, um, just this past um, pandemic, you actually saw two, two things happen. When millennials um, uh, had their student loans frozen, guess what happened? We saw a small bump in um, home ownership. Um, and and the, the relief packages for um, um, had actually caused an uptick in black businesses, particularly micro businesses. And so black people used the, their uh, stimulus checks to start new businesses. Why wouldn't they start more businesses with more money? I, I mean, the evidence is pretty clear that when given an opportunity, we take it. So yes, and, and, and I want to be clear, spending on different things actually helps the economy, economy one. Right. Uh, two, two, and then uh, two, when you're talking about uh, wayward spending, you know, let's be clear, uh, we, we, we complain about Jordans and rims while other people are buying inline skates and, <laughs> you know, and, fa and fancy watches. I don't, I don't want to make those kind of 
choices about uh, copious consumption when, in fact, we have less ability to consume in that way. And so let's, let's stop blaming black people, um, and let's get to the business of what we are owed. This is, and, and, and this is not like, uh, I mean, although uh, slavery was some time ago, housing discrimination is still with us. Yes. Um, um, criminal justice discrimination is still with us. You know, and just recently, 9-11 victims received uh, reparations. And, and, and throughout history, we, we know how to provide reparations. It's only when it comes to black people does it become controversial. This is not a controversy. Native Americans, while I will say it was not sufficient by any stretch of the imagination receive some form of reparations, Japanese in turn. Um, again, it was not sufficient, but they did receive redress. 9-11 uh, victim, Jews obviously in an international context. But when it comes to black people, we're, we, we freak out. It's like, oh no, we can't have reparations. We, my parents didn't own any slaves. I'm like, okay. Um, so we, we just gotta move forward and, and make sure H, um, HR 40 um, uh, moves forward. Yeah. So, so I want to read a couple comments that we've gotten and remind people that if you've got comments or questions, just put them in the comments on Facebook and we'll, we'll try to include them in our conversation here. Uh, Ed says uh, a national conversation is needed. A black family conversation needs to be had as well. Let's create the consensus needed to be able to demand instead of requesting uh, a comment from Bear on Facebook. The $156 billion dollars. That number is too low. Uh, those are great comments. Um, so, Andre, I want to talk just a little about, I want to pick up where you just left off, the difference, the distinction between the way people react to this idea and the way that the world has reacted, um, you know, in many other instances to, to classes of people who have been wronged. Uh, I, I suggested to Lauren Hood that, that, that there was a problem about uh, remorse, that, that, that one of the things that distinguishes us from, from other classes of people is that um, there isn't uh, a, a cultural or national remorse for the state of African Americans. As you point out, a lot of people think uh, the things that are wrong in our communities are, are our fault. Um, there's also this um, uh, the, 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 the self-inflicted victimhood, I guess, uh, that, that people feel when you talk about this. They feel like you're talking about them. You did this. You owe me. Um, and they don't see that, look, this is, this is institutional. This is, uh, um, this is about governments and institutions, not necessarily about, about individuals. How, how do we get past that? I mean, that, that to me is the hurdle. That's why this hasn't happened. Um, we, we seem to be able to have a conversation about it now without people absolutely freaking out. But, but how do we get to the point where people don't feel those things or feel the right things in order to do it? Yeah, uh, very good question. I'll, I'll, I'll point to two things, one more philosophical and one very practical Philosophically speaking, um, those who are deemed members of, of society generally get um, the rights and privileges um, that come along with, um, um, in this case, citizenship. Black people aren't considered members of society. We aren't considered full citizens. So questions about 
um, should we receive benefits that Americans receive um, come up? Because we're not considered members of society. And, and until we are not considered second-class citizens, this will be a hurdle for many people. Um, the other issue is related to the first. One of the reasons why we are not considered members is because our educational system has failed many of our white brothers and sisters and, and, and black brothers and sisters on, on this very issue. Um, people are quite frankly ignorant around slavery, around Jim Crow racism, around redlining, about basic facts in history. And you actually are seeing a resurgence in this resistance to learning, to actually learning. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of my um, professional career looking at education, and, you know, we heard so often, particularly in Michigan, about the racial wealth, uh, the racial uh, education gap. And um, seldom did we talk about the gap of history and, and knowledge of history and how that leads um, to a denial of basic liberties and rights for African Americans. Um, many people are simply ignorant. And the more people get educated around slavery, Jim Crow racism, historical discrimination, the more they, the reparations make sense. So this, this attack on quote-unquote CRT, critical race theory, which is, is really an attack on black cultural production, let's be real about that, uh, CRT for the most part is not taught in elementary schools, uh, secondary schools. It's really in graduate programs, law programs, with, um, for the most part. Um, but what we're seeing in book banning and, a, an, and sort of uh, a, a scrubbing of black people from history, uh, and I mean the Florida bill that uh, bans material that makes white people uncomfortable. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, how egregious can that get? I mean, this willful ignorance that people have taken on and embraced. Um, but it's, it's not only denying black people what we deserve, it's also eroding a democracy. Eventually the entire house of cards will fall if we become so anti-intellectual that facts do not matter. It was a fact that slavery robbed black people of wealth and opportunity. It is a fact that black people were denied housing subsidies. It is a fact that the GI Bill um, was not effectual for black Americans because of segregation. It is a fact that the federal government, the federal government codified local um, um, segregated uh, segregation ordinances and funded it. So these things are the reason why um, the, we see the state of, of, of black neighborhoods, black communities in, in, in which they are in. It is nothing grows without investment. And we have to stop blaming the lettuce and start investing in growth. And that means the underappreciated asset in black communities, black people, black neighborhoods, um, black homes, um, black communities. So, so, I mean, you painted a, you know, I think indirectly a pretty bleak picture there of, of the prospects here. Uh, this, this incredible movement against 
the education that you're talking about is now uh, the front in the in, in the war to try to get this uh, to get this done. Um, how do we? I mean, people are at a point now they just don't they're they're wanting to forgive the cliche whitewash um, all of this out of out of curriculum in in every corner of uh, okay. every school. How do you how do you fight that at the same time? trying to, to, to get to a place where we can talk about this in a, in a sensible way. Well, but let's also understand that, that the attack on CRT is also a recognition that power is growing. Uh, sure. That, that um, you know, it's not, I, I, I don't, I think it's hyperbole when people say this is their last gas or the last, you know, they're holding <laughs> on. Um, I, I don't, you know, white supremacy has lasted a, a very long time and it, it's managed to maintain itself. But um, there is a recognition that there's a power shift. And uh, the presidential election, let's be, let's be honest, this is as much about going against Donald Trump uh, than it, it was about electing Joe Biden. Uh, and I, I want to say that a little more than half of the country, it, it makes sense. Now, uh, reparations, as was mentioned earlier in the program, um, the, uh, um, the acceptance of it has increased almost threefold in the last 20 years. We're also seeing it um, um, practice at the local level, Evanston, um, Asheville, uh, the state of California weighing options, uh, particularly for LA, Maryland, Virginia, Reparations is already occurring, uh, you know, so, um, uh, but, and, and this is why it's important. You know, many of the discriminatory housing, uh, housing policies, for instance, didn't come from Washington, D.C. They came from local ordinances all across the country, and they moved up to D.C. I really believe, and this is an argument, this is a debate in, in, in reparation circles. Um, are these local efforts good or bad? I say they're good because just as exclusionary policies work their way up to D.C., reparative policies can work their way up to D.C. So what um, my, my sister, my dear sister Lauren Hood and others are doing is they're churning these ideas and they eventually they will elevate to the national level. And so um, we've got to continue um, to put pressure um, on, on local, state, and federal or ordinances. We must embrace these local reparations efforts. Um, and, and eventually, and, and, and by the way, and, and educate our children so that they understand um, uh, their, their history. And by the way, children are pretty resilient. They can understand anything if they have, particularly if they have a good teacher, uh, understanding slavery is, is not that difficult. Sure. Um, it, you won't, you know, go into psychiatric, uh, arrest, uh, it, by learning about slavery. Um, um, so for me, we, it, you know, it, it seems like we're, um, up against it more, today than ever, but the reality is power is shifting in this country. And we're just feeling the backlash and the resistance to it. But, but we just got to keep pressing, keep pressing 
and our day will come. Hey, uh, Andre Perry, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, I want to welcome uh, our previous panel back uh, to wrap things up. Reverend Joanne Watson, Lauren Hood, and Keith Williams to join Andre Perry. So, uh, Lauren, we only have about five minutes left. Um, I, I want to have you talk just a little more about how people who live here in the city and have maybe heard something about this but don't know everything about it, um, how can they get involved? Uh, is this something that they can take part in? And, um, you know, how can they learn more about what is going on? Um, well, the work is in very early stages. There is a first public meeting on February 24th in the evening, 100% virtual, where the discussion will be around the composition.